0: Well, it's good to be with you that are gathered here tonight, as well as those of you who are worshiping with us via live stream. Let me encourage you, if you would, to take your Bible and turn with me in your Bible to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians in chapter one. First Corinthians, chapter one. We have been. In a series of studies uh, on the message of Christ crucified, and tonight, this is the fifth in that series. I want to begin reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 17 through to the end of the chapter. Let me encourage you to attend carefully to the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Paul writes and he says, Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 1. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then very simply, verse 2 of chapter 2, Paul writes, For I decided or determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask our Lord's blessing on the ministry of his word. Let us pray. O Holy Fathers, we stand here at the very threshold of examining this portion of your word. We would corporately cry out that you would be pleased to send forth your spirit in copious measures upon preacher and upon listener alike. We ask, O Lord, that you would send the spirit of wisdom and illumination, the spirit of insight and understanding that we may properly understand this passage. O Lord, in addition to that, grant by the power of your Spirit that we may feel and sense the weight of its truth upon our hearts and that we may be given up to its norming influence that our lives may be brought into more conformity To the one who loved us and who gave himself for us, even Christ Jesus, our Lord, we plead in his name. Amen. Now thus far, we have been considering Christ crucified as we find it in Holy Scripture. And we have been studying various aspects of that message. We have looked at the message of Christ crucified in prophecy. We have looked at it as it has been taught by our Lord himself. What it means the glory in the cross. And we have also studied the message of the cross in terms of its triumph. In terms of its victory. Tonight we're going to look at the message of Christ crucified in terms of its apostolic preaching. And I'm not so sure that uh, I don't. I want to return to the apostolic nature of this in future sermons as well. But one of the problems that I have faced in the apostolic preaching of the cross, this aspect of it, is the great abundance of passages to which one can turn in order to underscore the content of their preaching. There is such a tremendous amount of material available that we cannot even begin to cover it to the extent that it deserves. And so as I thought of the cross and the preaching of the apostles, the words of the apostle Paul, which almost seemed to be burned into this first chapter of the Corinthians, wrong as it were, Verse 22, For the Jews request the sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we, that is Paul and his fellow apostles, preach Christ crucified. And then in chapter 2 and verse 2, For I determined, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So let me encourage you to keep your Bibles open to chapters 1 and and a little bit of chapter 2, that portion there. Now, there are three things I want us to look at this evening and to consider about the preaching of the apostles with respect to the cross. The first thing we're going to see is that the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ was the fundamental focus of their preaching. It was the object of their proclamation. Secondly, that the cross was the comprehensive answer to man's great need or to man's search. And then thirdly, they declared the cross to be the all-sufficient provision for the salvation of mankind. So first of all, then, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, notice, was the fundamental focus of their preaching. We read in verse 2 of chapter 2, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And from Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost, when he declared that it was not possible for the crucified Christ to be held by the pains of death, right up to the vision of John on the Isle of Patmos, we're peering into the very worship of heaven, which was centered on the Lamb of God as it had been slain. The cross was the fundamental focus of apostolic preaching in the early church. The only thing, says one evangelical writer who wrote closer to the turn of the century, James Denny, he wrote that one thing you cannot dispute is that the death of Christ occupied the central place in the apostolic message, in the apostolic preaching. Now then secondly... They also saw the cross as the comprehensive answer to man's need. And you see in verses 22 and 24 of chapter 1. For we say, see, that the Jews seek after or request a sign. And Gentiles or Greeks seek after wisdom. But we, Paul says, preach Christ crucified. Paul portrays it, as it were, these two extremes, you'll notice, of that for which men look when they contemplate the things of God. The two characteristics of the kind of things for which men search with respect to God. On the one hand, he characterizes it in terms of the seeking of the Jewish nation. They sought for signs. They sought for something. Some grand display, if you please, of the supernatural. Some demonstration of power. And there is always that kind of person. On the other hand. You had the Greeks who prided themselves in their philosophy as well as in their intellect. And in matters that they found intellectually stimulating. For them, the thing that really mattered was rational evidence. Knowledge was everything to the Greek. And so you've got these two extremes that present, as it were, the whole scope, the full gamut. Of humanity. The Jews come looking after signs as they did with Jesus, you'll remember. As recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And Jesus tells them, No sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he tells them, For as Jonah was three days... And three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You want a sign? The only sign Jesus says you'll have is the cross. The cross is the sign. But as for the Jews, that was an absolute stumbling block, scandalon. It was a scandal to the Jews. A Messiah that was meek and submissive. A Messiah who was to die on the, tr- on the tree under the very curse of God. For them, the Jews, that was an other contradiction of terms. But Jesus knew that they didn't want the sign because they wanted to believe in him. He knew that they're clamoring for a sign was simply because they had the desire that they, or they had no intention of embracing Christ as their Savior at all. Rather, what our Lord looked for was a sign of personal commitment on their part. And he knew that the sign for personal commitment was to be his very own cross. John informs us in his own gospel in the second chapter in verse 25 that Jesus had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. The Greeks, they cherished their mental gymnastics, as it were, and they gave nothing, gave them more pride. Nothing stimulated them and moved them any more than to be able to tie others up in knots with arguments that they regarded as their erudite wisdom and the rhetoric of their own orators. And as far as they were concerned, in their theology—if you could even call it a theology or a philosophy—God had no feelings, and therefore the word that Paul preached of God, who entered into the world and who entered into human suffering for them, that was an other contradiction of terms. And the word of the cross that Paul preached, bereft of eloquent. Eloquent wisdom, as he testifies in verse 17, lest the cross of Christ should be rendered void of its power, emptied of its power. Well, that was even worse to them from their own ungodly perspective. They, the Greeks, would have clapped and applauded if only he could have presented things to them in a rather eloquent manner. Because some of their great, great rhetoricians could speak of pure nonsense. And people would be thrilled to hear it simply because of the way that they could put it over on people. They must have been politicians such as we have today. But when Paul spoke, they complained that his preaching and teaching was crude and uneducated. And amounted to a mere babbling. What more will this babbler say as they accused him in Acts 17 and verse 18? Well, nonetheless, says Paul, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block. To people who are only interested in some display of razzle-dazzle of the supernatural. Natural. And to the Greeks, foolishness or folly, who were only interested in the facade or in the appearance of intellectual pursuit. But to those who are called, Paul says, regardless if they are Jews, regardless if they are Greeks or Gentiles, if the grace of God has worked in their hearts, then we preach Christ crucified, the power of God, The wisdom of God. So then the cross was the comprehensive answer for which men searched, but could not of themselves find. Then thirdly, and I should have told you that the third point is going to be my longest. (laughs) They saw that the cross was the all-sufficient provision for the salvation of men. Now I suppose... Uh, I should have warned you ahead of time that I intend to spend uh, more of my time on this third point than I have the first two. Because it seems to me, as we see it here particularly in verse 30, where Paul lists for us the glorious blessings of salvation that come to us through the cross which he preaches. And it seems to me that what we have here is a short summary, as it were of the blessings that are linked to the apostolic preaching of the cross as the all-sufficient provision for the salvation of mankind. And the first thing you will see in verse 30 about the word of the cross is that God has united us to Christ Christ. Through his death on the cross. Verse 30. But of him. That is because of God. You are in Christ Jesus. Who became for us. Wisdom from God. That is our righteousness. And our sanctification. Some translations have it. Our holiness. And our redemption. And the construction there. In the Greek. Is precise. In how it should be read. But of him you are in Christ Jesus. In other words, the emphasis which comes, so, comes through so clearly here in the text, in the original, is that it is God who is responsible for our union with Christ. It is God who initiates, it is God who secures our salvation in Christ. The initiative of our salvation in the preaching of of the cross is all of God, Paul is saying. Yes, it's true that God is the author of the great plan of redemption. But I think that this verse is indicating something more than that. If by grace this evening I am found by Christ, if by grace you this evening are found in Christ, If our hearts are lifted up in praise and thanksgiving for all that Christ is, then this verse informs us that it is all of God. It is because of Him that you, we, are in Christ Jesus. He is the ground of our salvation. Now, if you examine this verse in the context, you will realize that Paul is pointing out to them that it was not that they were better than anyone else. Far from the case. It was not that they were more distinguished or more influential. It wasn't that they were more important or noble by birth that they came to Christ. Nor was it that they tried harder or that they attended church more often than others. And it certainly wasn't because any of them deserved it. They were all sinners, to be sure. No, on the contrary, as you read down the list, Paul is careful to point out over and over from verse 26 onwards, not many wise, he says, according to the flesh, at least according to worldly standards, not many mighty, not many noble are called. So that no human being might have any grounds to boast in the presence of Almighty God. It is God and God alone who is the sole basis of our salvation. Therefore, regardless of what we feel, regardless of what we have done or what we have left undone. Indeed, regardless of all that we think of ourselves, the initiative For salvation is all of God. This is what is known in theological terms, if you'll just pardon me, as prevenient grace. What does the term prevenient grace mean? It means that grace comes first. It means that grace comes to us first of all. God gives us grace. Grace. Otherwise, we would never have responded to Him. It means that God takes the first step in our salvation. One finds so many examples of this in Holy Scripture, but one of the clearest examples is that of David when he fell into sin with Bathsheba. And after he had sinned, what did he do? Did he sit down immediately and begin to pen Psalm 51? I don't think he did. In fact, the indications that we have in Scripture are that he did everything but repent. He tried to cover up his sins. And the more he tried to cover up his sins, the worse they became. He called Uriah from the battlefront. And then he tried to persuade him to go in unto his wife. But due to a code of honor and out of respect... For his fellow men in battle, Uriah refused the comforts of his wife. And so David tried to intoxicate Uriah to go in unto his wife. And he did manage to make Uriah drunk. And yet drunken Uriah was more noble than King David. And so David plotted to having pushed to the front of the battle and there... To be abandoned and murdered by the enemy. And so David's sin consisted not only in adultery, but in murder as well. He didn't confess his sin to the Lord. He didn't bow before God in genuine contrition and repentance to seek forgiveness. No, but he tried to cover it up. And the more he tried to cover it up, it moldered and smothered. And the worse it became. But the thrilling thing is that God sent to David the prophet Nathan. That's prevenient grace. That is God taking the first step. He sent him the word of God to bring him back to repentance. The initiative was God's. It wasn't David's at all. And God seeks us like the shepherd seeks for the lost sheep. The initiative was with God in the cross. The cross is the initiative that God has taken for our salvation. And Paul expresses it in Romans 5 and verse 8. But God commends commends His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to improve or get better. He didn't wait for us to seek Him. But just as Adam and Eve in the aftermath of their sin hid themselves from the presence of God, God comes seeking them in the garden. Adam calling, Adam, where are you? Where are you? And so we see God takes the initiative of Him, Paul says, you are in Christ Jesus. And as Moses said to the children of Israel on the verge of the promised land, the Lord did not set his love upon you, nor did he choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you, You see, he just resolves it in the mystery of God's love. It's because the Lord loves you. And the second thing we see here in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30. Is that the union whereby God has united us to the Lord Jesus Christ through his death has some very dramatic consequences, you'll notice. And the first is this, Christ has become for us Wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, our sanctification, or holiness, and our redemption. Christ became for us wisdom from God. Now, I wonder if after Paul's description regarding not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble or called, whether some of them began to have something of an inferiority complex but that wasn't Paul's aim or intention at all. He preached that in Christ, in this message of the cross, Christ becomes wisdom in the fullest and in the richest sense of that word. The wisdom that is out of this world, the ultimate wisdom, is the wisdom of God. And John informs us in his own gospel that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. No man, no matter how educated in terms of worldly standards, no matter how wise people may think he is, no matter how much knowledge or how much money he may have or how distinguished he may be in the eyes of others. It doesn't matter. No man has seen God, John declares, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He is the one who reveals Him. And therefore, someone to be united with the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, is to be vitally united with the one who is the very source of wisdom, God Himself. And that is the wisdom that Paul declares the world does not know. You see, there is a fundamental difference between knowledge on the one hand and wisdom on the other. A computer can store an incredible amount of knowledge. Piles and piles of information. For that matter, so can a wastebasket. And sometimes there's not a whole lot of difference between the two. But you see, no matter how vast that pile of information can be stored, there is no relationship to the wisdom that is able to use that information for the right purposes. And wisdom is the ability to use knowledge for the right purpose. And among many things today that our world is lacking, it is that of wisdom. More than anything else, our world lacks wisdom. We don't lack knowledge. We probably have more knowledge today than we've ever had before. More education, higher standards, perhaps, in some cases, than we've ever known before. Far more information than we can possibly handle. But what stares stares us in the face through the various absurdities of politics and through the staggering immorality of the societies of the world and the atrocities that we see committed day by day on every hand, is that we're facing a shortage in epidemic proportions of what James called in his Catholic epistle, wisdom from above. And without that wisdom, all the knowledge that we can possibly muster will only produce fools. So the fundamental reason for the shortage of wisdom, or if you please An epidemic of madness and folly is that man has been cut off from God. Man has been cut off from the one who is the source of all wisdom. And so the Bible declares that man to be a fool who denies the existence of God. Who says in his heart, there is no God. It is a fool who will cut himself off and remain cut off from the source of wisdom. And the opposite of that is the man who by faith has been united with Christ. And that man finds that Christ has become for him wisdom from God. And how were these believers to appropriate that wisdom? And how are we, you and I, to appropriate that wisdom? Well, they could do so by soaking themselves once again as we heard afresh this morning by soaking themselves in the teachings of Christ, by applying ourselves to dig deeply in the word of God. For therein is a treasure trove of wisdom, and it is rich with jewels of discernment and prudence. And it is only as we immerse ourselves, you and I, in the word of God that We find the wisdom of God in Christ, who is our wisdom, begins to norm our discernment so that we learn how to use with wisdom the knowledge that we have. Now, you and I need to become so steeped in the word of God, in the teaching of Christ, that he becomes our wisdom to the end, that we might... Be able not only to discern between the good and the bad, but to be able to discern between the good and the best. Because sometimes what is good is not the best. And you and I need to be seeking that which is the best. Now, what is it that governs people's decision making? Well, it's policy. And yet so often today, rather than policy, it is expediency. And if the policy does not suit the present contingency, then what do they do? Well, then you simply change the policy (laughs) to make it fit with your desires. And if the rule appears to thwart your ambitions, then it's a simple thing. You simply change the rule. And that is to go down the primrose path to destruction. Our policy ought to be to walk just as He walked. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6. To seek to act in each situation how we understand our Lord would have acted. How He would have behaved. And then He becomes our wisdom. And one may respond, well, that might mean that I lose out financially and I may incur criticism from those with whom I work. How can that be wisdom? Well, the most profitable solution may not be the wisest. Sometimes it's better to be poor and wise and to have God than to have God speak of you as a rich fool. There's more that could be said about that, but we need to practice the presence of the Lord our God. And the very word of Christ, I think of how it was so prophetic and how it was so beautifully fulfilled when Peter and John Just the day after the Pentecost, when they had healed that lame man. And they were dragged before the Sanhedrin, the very council, the very court that had condemned the Lord. And do you remember how Peter had been met by the servant of the high priest and the little girl who said, Oh yes, he's one of his. He's one of his. And Peter says, Oh no, I don't know anything about that man. But in Acts 4, you have Peter standing here, not in the front of a little girl, but in the presence of the council. And they ask him, by what power or by what name have you done this? And Peter says, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And in case you missed the point, whom you crucified. What courage. Here is a changed Peter. Peter. From the time when he faced the little girl. And here is a Peter with wisdom and with courage. And there in chapter 4 of Acts, we're given the following account of the Sanhedrin. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they would had been with Jesus. He has made to us wisdom. Christ has become for us wisdom from God. And in opposition to that righteousness, sanctification, holiness, and redemption, Christ then is our righteousness. And it is in that way that he has become for us wisdom from God. You give the keynote to this apostolic teaching in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is in union with Christ. In Christ, united with him, we become the righteousness of God. And we are declared righteous, not just righteousness, but the righteousness of God which is complete and perfect and impeccable because it is the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. This, brothers and sisters, is our justification. Our sins have been reckoned to Christ. And Christ's righteousness has been reckoned or imputed to us. And that is why in Romans 8 and verse 1, Paul declares, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Christ Jesus, who are united to Him in vital union. Now there is a sense, of, I may say it reverently, that when God looks at you and when He looks at me, if we're in Christ, and I am speaking of those of us tonight who have come to Christ and have trusted Him as personal Lord and Savior, there is a sense in which God does not see us as we are. But he sees us as we are in Christ Jesus. And the glorious fact of that is, is that the ground of your acceptance, the basis of your acceptance and the ground and basis of my acceptance in God's presence can never be stronger than it already is. It's already the perfect righteousness of Christ. No matter how spiritual I may feel when I get up in the morning. No matter how depressed or downcast I may feel. You and I are not accepted on the basis of anything in ourselves. It is not our filthy rags we present before him. But we stand clothed in the spotless righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness and then also our sanctification or holiness. And these two things, dear people, go together always. And that is the force of the Greek grammar here. The two words are joined together by a very close link because in one sense, they are two aspects of the same thing. They overlap and we cannot separate them entirely, though we can distinguish them. The righteousness speaks of our legal standing before God, whereas sanctification holiness speaks of our daily walk with God. The one has to do with our standing righteous in the presence of God. The other has to do with our state. The one, our position in Christ. The other, our practice as we walk as Christians. But if the one has more to do with our position and the other has more to do with our condition, there is also a sense in which both have to do with our position in Christ that word hagios in one sense the word for sanctification it means separated put apart reserved for some special use and that's why you could speak of certain furniture in the tabernacle as holy it's not because the furniture possessed some kind of magic power as some have imagined it's simply because it was set apart for the service of God, and therefore it's holy. That's why a priest can be spoken of as holy. He has been separated by God for a special service. And so there is a sense in which you and I, as we come into Christ, are set apart. And Peter acknowledges that in his own epistle when he says, You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. His own special people, and Peter is drawing from the Old Testament, and he speaks of that Old Testament word of endearment, the word "skoula," for which there is almost no translation. And when God speaks of His skoula, He's speaking of His special treasure. How dear His people are to Him! It is a deep sense. It's a term of endearment to God. His skoula. We're His special people. And so there is positional holiness, but there's also a practical holiness of lifestyle. And the Holy Spirit works in us. And in Christ, there is this radical act of recreation. And in Christ, there is also a continuing process of transformation. As the Spirit of God dwells in us, we're being transformed into the very image of Christ. Second Corinthians 3 and verse 18. But we, with all unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image that is in the image of Christ from one stage of glory to another. And so it is our meditation upon Christ and His Word that we're being transformed to reflect the glory of God. As we behold Christ, not simply head study, but beholding Him experientially, as you take time to behold Christ revealed in His Word, and we walk just as He walked. And then, last of all, He is our wisdom because He is, Paul tells us, our redemption. And you can understand that word in so many ways. The whole work of salvation can be described as redemption. The Old Testament speaks of our deliverance from re- Egypt as redemption. Redemption speaks of salvation that has been procured at a cost. The payment of a ransom. We are ransomed, Peter says, from our futile ways. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. But here redemption is separate from justification and sanctification. Because it speaks of that final deliverance. When all of the effects of evil, and in this sense, it is future because there's coming the day when we'll not only be delivered from the effects of sin completely. But when we are glorified, we will be delivered from the very presence of sin itself altogether and that forever and ever. So much more could be said, but this is something of the apostolic preaching of the cross. The proclamation of Christ and Him crucified. Christ, the power of God. Christ, the wisdom of God. And the proclamation of Christ as our righteousness. Christ as our holiness. And Christ as our redemption. That it is written, let him who glories, let him who boasts, Let him boast. Let him glory in the Lord. Why glory in the Lord? Well, for the simple reason that you and I have absolutely nothing in which to boast but the Lord Jesus Christ. We have nothing to honor, to offer God. Nothing to offer him. To God be the glory great things he has done. So loved he the world. That he gave us his son. Let us pray.